Word of prayer. Lord, as we enter into this Easter season, we are mindful especially of the love that you've shown us by dying in our behalf. We do pray that this night as we study your holy word, we would appreciate all the more the significance of that death, the blood that you did shed in our behalf. For we take to heart the truth of your word that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The fact that we stand before you tonight with our sins forgiven and we ourselves set free from the bondage of sin is something that is due only to your mercy and grace. We acknowledge that our lives are yours, that you have bought us with a price. We belong to you and that our lives should demonstrate that fact, not only with the profession of our mouths, but the way we live our lives. We do pray you would bring that to pass more consistently and steadily in our lives, that we would truly be a witness to your glory and to your love. We pray, Father, that you would accomplish that through our study tonight, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Hebrews, the ninth chapter, again this week, and probably at least for a portion of next week. And uh, I know that none of you hold that against me, and you keep encouraging me to give this in-depth study to Hebrews, the ninth chapter, and the rest of the passages we look at, and that no one's going to uh, make fun of the pastor afterwards for the fact that he still hasn't finished the ninth chapter of Hebrews when he gets done this evening. Having that confidence about you, my brothers and sisters, we'll begin our reading of Hebrews 9 at the first verse, and I think I'll read the entire chapter this evening. Hear God's word. Now even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and its sanctuary, a sanctuary of this world. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the first, wherein were the candlestand and the table and the showbread, which is called the holy place. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was a golden pot holding the manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it, cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of which things we cannot now speak in detail. Now these things, having been thus prepared, the priests go in continually into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the services. But into the second, the high priest alone, once in the year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Spirit, thus signifying that the way into the holy place had not yet been made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing, which is a figure for the time present, according to which are offered both gifts and sacrifices that cannot, as touching the conscience, make the worshiper perfect, being only with meats and drinks and diverse baptisms, carnal ordinances, imposed until the time of Reformation. But Christ, having come a high priest of the good things to come, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, nor yet through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, entered in once for all into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling them that have been defiled, sanctify unto the cleanliness of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of a new covenant, 
that a death having taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they that have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be brought in the death of him that made it. For a covenant is of force over dead bodies. For it does never avail while he that made it lives. Wherefore, even the first covenant hath not been dedicated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses unto all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the blood itself, excuse me, both the book itself, and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded to youward. Moreover, the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry he sprinkled in like manner with the blood. And according to the law, I may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission. It was necessary, therefore, that the copies of the things in the heavens should be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands, like in pattern to the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Else must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the end of the ages, hath he been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been once offered to bear the sins of many, shall appear, excuse me, shall appear at the end of the age a second time, apart from sin, to them that wait for him unto salvation. And thus far the reading of God's word. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, as I've already told you, is one of the most heavily laden chapters of the New Testament in terms of theology, and we've seen a a good deal of that already. We're only going to review for a few moments because the main purpose of our study tonight is going to be to sort out how verses 16 and 17 should be understood, whether the author is talking about a testament that has come into effect because the testator, Christ, has died or whether he's talking about a covenant, the benefits of which have accrued to us, even though we don't deserve them, because the one who made the covenant has died. The beginning of chapter 9 continues the argument of the author for the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament, the Old Covenant system of salvation, in particular the Old Covenant tabernacle and the ritual of the Levitical priest. He tells us uh, in some detail, although he tells us as well that he won't go into a great deal of detail, he tells us a bit about the holy place and then the holy of holies, and then he talks about the fact that the, um, the priest went in with blood that wasn't his own, and so talks about the ritual that was associated with the holy of holies, and in particular he thinks about the day of atonement and the things that took place on that day. Then verse 13 says, continuing the argument for the superiority of Christ, if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling them that have been defiled sanctify unto the cleanliness of the flesh, how much more, a fortiori, he says, to the greater, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
The new covenant goes to the very heart of the matter. It cleanses the conscience and not just the outward flesh of people. Can you remind me what the ashes of the red heifer had to do with cleanliness in the old covenant? Vicki? Yeah, well, it wasn't the red heifer that had to be sacrificed. The water of uh, ablution was prepared with the ashes of a red heifer. A person who touched a dead body was ceremonially unclean, and the uh, cleansing water was mixed with the ashes of the red heifer and was sprinkled on the person as a way of indicating that they could come into the presence of God and be part of the people of God again. <clears throat> Last week, I don't think I mentioned to you, but as an interesting historical aside on this, when you think about it, the ashes of the red heifer is not one of the most dominant aspects of Old Testament ritual or Old Covenant Levitical practice that you might have thought of. And so you wonder, why does the author refer to the blood of goats and bulls, which is a very common thing in the Old Covenant, and then this rather obscure thing about the ashes of the red heifer? Why does he bring in that as one? I mean, he could mention any number of illustrations, but still we wonder why that one might have been on his mind. And it has been suggested, and although I'm not going to declare that it's absolutely true, I, I think it has a lot going for it. It's been suggested that, um, and I think we've seen this in the past, those of you who have been with this study for the time that I've been teaching it, many parts of the book of Hebrews seem to be addressed especially to Jews who were tempted to follow the Qumran community and some of the, um, the Jewish practices or theological distinctives of the, uh, the Dead Sea community, as, as it's also called, the Qumran community. And in the Qumran community, they had priests appointed, Zadokite priests appointed, who, um, did not, who religiously were adverse to entering into Jerusalem or participating in the temple services there because they believed that the temple in Jerusalem was defiled. And they were waiting for their teacher of righteousness, Messiah, who would come. And at that time, he would restore Jerusalem and the temple and so forth. But in the meantime, they had to carry out the purity of the Jewish rites as best they could outside of Jerusalem. And so they were in the Dead Sea community. That by way of historical introduction. But now, going back to the red heifer, one of the aspects of the red heifer ritual that had to be observed is that the heifer had to be burned outside the walls of Jerusalem, outside the city. And so, you see, that would be one of the things the Dead Sea community would have been able to follow, even though they couldn't follow the Day of Atonement. They did not have the temple in their possession. They were outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And it has been suggested by some that that may be why the author mentions the red heifer, because in writing to Jewish Christians tempted to go back into the Qumran community outlook or even into their, uh, their very practice and lifestyle, the ashes of the red heifer would be something that would have spoken to them because they would have been practicing that. Since they couldn't do many of the other things, they were doing that. So an interesting historical aside, I think. Verse 14 tells us that the blood of Christ is far superior to anything the Old Covenant offered, whether in the polluted Jerusalem temple or in the Dead Sea community, because the blood of Christ was offered through the eternal spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit himself, and Christ offered himself. He did, the, he did so voluntarily, not like a, a dumb animal who was just passively led to slaughter, and he offered himself as one who was without blemish unto God, and he cleanses our conscience. He cleanses our conscience from dead works 
and finally with the effect that we might serve the living God. Then in verse 15, the author says, for this reason, on that basis, since he has accomplished that kind of salvation, he has become the mediator of a new covenant, that a death having taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they that have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. He goes between God and the people of the covenant, mediating the provisions of the new covenant to them. And the two provisions in particular that the author focuses on are redemption, the setting free or liberation from transgressions, and then the receiving of the promise of eternal inheritance. The author tells us that, in a sense, we are reenacting the exodus experience of the Old Testament people of God, who were set free from bondage in Egypt. And, of course, that was supposed to be symbolic of being set free from sin. They were set free, and then they did what? They received the inheritance of God in the uh, promised land, the uh, Canaan, which God had promised them. All of which was a parable, though, of the good things to come. All of which was pointing ahead to our being set free from sin and entering in not just into Palestine, I mean, which is beggarly in comparison to the inheritance we have, but entering into the very kingdom of God for all eternity. And now we come to verses 16 and 17, which will be the focus of our study this evening. Verses 15 to 20 as a whole uh, are witnessing to the realization of relief from the curse of the covenant that was instituted under Abraham and mediated through Moses to Israel. God made a covenant with Abraham. He mediated a covenant through Moses to the children of Abraham, the Israelites, and that covenant had curses attached to it. That's why the people had to be cleansed. That's why the people had to be purified, why they had to be redeemed, why sacrifices had to be made. That's why intercession of Levitical priests was called for, because of the sins of the people which brought the curses of the covenant upon them. And verses 15 to 20 is, is trying to communicate to us that those curses have been lifted now. With the coming of the new covenant enacted upon better promises, we are set free from the curses of the covenant God has made with Abraham and Moses. And the author points this out by telling us in verse 16, I'm going to read it in my translation's way of putting it, and then I'd like to go back and tell you another way of putting it, in the original Greek anyway, how it could be translated. Verse 16, for many of you, will read something like this. For where a testament is, there must of necessity be the death of him that made it. Verse 17, for a testament is of force where there has been death, for it does never avail while he that made it lives. Here's the problem for the biblical interpreter. The word that is used here in the Greek, diatheke, can be legitimately translated either covenant or testament, last will and testament. A covenant and a last will and testament are different concepts. I won't say altogether, but for the most part they are different concepts. What they do have in common is that they are both uh, sovereignly disposed by an individual. God makes a covenant and he, um, he lays that upon his people. He is the giver of the covenant and the terms are stipulated by God himself. And in the case of a last will and testament, of course, the person who disposes of his estate is the one who determines how the estate will be divided and passed on. So they do have something in common, but they don't have much in common. A covenant and a testament are different concepts. Bob? Now, I, I, you might 
think because in real estate you can have it written in such a way that when you die, certain things happen to the title automatically, even apart, even apart from your will. Even apart from your will. Yeah, it's the way the, title, the, way the ownership is written out. Well, what that indicates is something of a testamental effect is written into the contract of the real estate. The concept in the ancient world of a testament is pretty close to what we understand by a last will and testament, however. Dick? Well, this is one of the things we're going to look at, and since you've asked, I'll answer your question right now. Diatheke, the Greek word, is translated testament in the New Testament, if at all, only in verses 16 and 17 in front of you. Every other appearance of the word diatheke in the New Testament is uh, either obviously or very likely to be taken simply in the sense of a covenant. More importantly, the Old Testament, which was translated into Greek, who can tell me what the Old Testament Greek translation is called? Julie? Septuagint. You heard someone say that, didn't you? <laughs> the Septuagint is the Old Testament Hebrew translated into Greek. And in the Old Testament... In the Septuagint, the word uh, bereath in Hebrew, which is the word for covenant, is uniformly translated diatheke. And so in the thinking of a biblically oriented person in the age of the New Testament, diatheke would have meant covenant. You would expect that to be the case. Now, but let me turn the tables on Dick here. Although I think that's the more important evidence, that that's the way the Bible treats the word, almost uh, uh, 99, well, 100% of the case, and the cases, and the only exception would be verses 16 and 17 here. On the other hand, outside of the New Testament, the Greek word diatheke is 99% of the time always last will and testament. In the Greek papyri, in the Roman period, diatheke was always a testament. And we can strengthen the argument in favor of testament by looking at what at least the translation I have given you says. It says in verse 17, for a testament is a force um, upon death, or if you will, where there has been a death, for it does never avail while he that made it lives. That fits right into the idea of a last will and testament. You don't have the provisions of the testament come into effect until the person who testated dies, until the person who makes the last will and testament finally um, is gone. And when that person dies, then the testament goes into effect. And that seems to be what the author is saying. And again, against the language, the Greek of that period, you would expect testament. However, I do think that in order of interpretive importance, we should look at the internal theological evidence of the word of God and place greater emphasis upon it than we do upon the external cultural evidence of the use of the Greek outside it. Now, both have to be consulted, and I'm not trying to, to pit them against one another as an axiom. I'm just saying that where the two would seem to pull against one another, our preference would certainly be internal rather than external evidence. And the internal evidence would incline you to think diatheke is to be understood as it usually is in the Bible, of a covenant, not a testament. Bob? Well, the Old Covenant, so to speak, or the Old Testament, God gave a testament that on, on the death of his son we would inherit. Well, that's the question. Is that a, is that a um, biblical concept or not? Okay, is that what the question is? I couldn't understand. Right. Now, 
I'll be very honest with you. You have writers like R.J. Rushdoony who style almost everything that they do in terms of biblical theology around the concept of a testament and inheritance. And um, there's a lot of theological value in the applications made by people like Rushdoony or uh, J. Barton Payne and so forth who use the testamental concept. The real question is whether it is what is intended by the text. Now, you'll get an inheritance notion if you look at something like 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you remember my series on 1 Peter, we spent some time on this. We are told that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in verse 3 has brought us unto, according to verse 4, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. So Christ's resurrection has brought an inheritance to us. Now, the strange thing about that, though, is in terms of inheritance conceptions, you would have someone die and leave you his property. Well, that's not what Peter's saying. He's saying Jesus didn't die. He rose again. It's his coming to life that grants us an inheritance. And I think that the background here is not so much an inheritance as understood in the Roman world of leaving your last will to your son or to some loved one or something like that, your estate to leaving your estate to someone by means of your will. But the background is rather the inheritance that was given to the Jews at the time of their entering the promised land. The very same Greek word that's used in Peter is used of the plot of land that was given to every family in Palestine when they inherited the promised land. And so I think that is the conceptual background for the language of inheritance in the New Testament rather than of a Roman last will and testament. Well, we do have verses 16 and 17 to deal with in detail, and let's do that. We have a presumption in favor of covenant being the concept in verses 16 and 17. And I'd like to uh, support that presumption with more detailed evidence. In the first place, notice what the author has been talking about in the local context of his own writing. See, what the question Dick Myers raised leads us in a certain direction only by means of general linguistic evidence. That is, the general vocabulary of the Bible supports the notion of covenant. That's good, but it can be strengthened. What does this author mean when he uses the word diatheke? And better, what does this author mean in this setting by the word? So let's go back and just do a little survey. In chapter 8, he uses the word diatheke. And um, give an example, about verse 7, he speaks of the first having been faultless. And then verse 8, for having fi- finding fault with them, he saith. And then he quotes Jeremiah about a new covenant. A new covenant. There's no doubt in anybody's mind that he is talking covenantally here because Jeremiah uses the word bereath. In verse 6 of chapter 8, But now hath he obtained a ministry the more excellent, by so much as he is the mediator of a better covenant. Now you come over to chapter 9, and we read the same kind of a fortiori, to the better, to the greater. Christ has offered himself to cleanse our consciences. Verse 15, for this cause he is the mediator, the same word, mediator of something, as we found back in chapter 8. He's the mediator of a, what? Of a new covenant. And so right here 
In chapter 9, at the um, 15th verse, which precedes the questionable 16th verse, we know that diatheke means covenant. I mean, no one could credibly argue otherwise, and I've never seen a commentary try. What they say is, oh yes, it's obviously a covenant in verse 15, but because of the pun that is available in the Greek, diatheke meaning covenant or testament, in verses 16 and 17 he uses the other conception, then goes back to covenant in verse 18. I know this is kind of detailed for you, but I mean, if you're going to be scholars of the Bible, you have to ask yourself, how likely is it that an author will, in one verse, use a word one way, in the next verse change, in the next two verses, and then go back to the original in the very next one? That just doesn't happen very often. Because if I did that in a sermon, I would expect you to be confused. And if I wrote it down and expected students to read it and take a test on it, I wouldn't be surprised if the ambiguity threw them. Yes, Brian. If the word is the same, and he wanted it to mean last will of testament, how else could he have stated that? Well, he could have used two different words for covenant. Soon theke and diatheke were both available in the Greek language for covenant. Um, and so I suppose if I were the author, if I wanted to set them apart, I would have used syntheke in other places, and I would have used diatheke here for testament. The difference is that syntheke can be an agreement between equals, but it need not be. The emphasis there is upon it being mutually binding, soon theke. Uh, the diatheke uh, expresses a little more clearly the sovereign disposition aspect of a testament or of a covenant. But both words could legitimately have been used. The real question I would have in, in response, uh, Brian, is why would the author want to go to the different concept here when the whole talk from chapter 8 on has been about covenant and about new covenant replacing old covenant and fulfilling its provisions and so forth. Um, he's been talking about the death of Christ and he wants to show that the curses of the covenant have been lifted. It just doesn't seem to me likely that he would want to do that. Now, the answer given by the commentaries that follow that line would be, well, the author at verse 15 has just talked about the promise of eternal inheritance at the very end of verse 15, and so inheritance, last will and testament go together, and so he goes into the last will and testament for two verses, then he goes back to the covenantal language. So that's the, that's the argument that would be offered, and I'm saying that I'm not convinced, in fact, I'm very far from convinced. And, and that's from someone who took an entire course once uh, using the theology of the New Testament being a testament, the inheritance idea, J. Barton Payne's book, um, and I was very much persuaded at that time, but I'm not now persuaded. I just think it's highly unlikely the author would do that. Okay. Um, Kent, have you been waiting? Uh, I have the same question. Jim. Isn't this kind of the same as how they approach the word baptizo in its secular usage and then therefore make a case for immersion Well, it is, except that I wouldn't grant that baptizo, even in secular usage, always means immersion. The argument of the Baptist is it always means that outside the Bible, it must mean that inside. That's a poor interpretive method, but it's also factually mistaken that it always means that. That's the methodology. 
That is the methodology. The general hermeneutical, hermeneutical rule that I'm propounding tonight is internal evidence should outweigh external evidence if there is a um, pull between them. Yes? In what context is the word testament used in the Old Testament? The word testament never appears in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's what I began with. You see, diatheke is always used for bereath in the Greek translation of the old. And also in view of the inheritance that was given to Abraham and to Oh, I see. The word inheritance is found in the Old Testament. Not the word testament, but the word inheritance is. Well, inheritance has to do with the Jews possessing the promised land and the family plot that is there, not losing their inheritance. That's why the Leverett institution was in, was there, so that a family would never be dispossessed of their place in the Promised Land. The inheritance had nothing to do with the shedding of blood, whereas the covenant, the covenant so the testament wouldn't necessarily require... The concept of inheritance is, is um, in a different conceptual that's ballpark. Point, yeah, that's the point I was trying to make. Right. Yeah, for an author who is so steeped in the Old Covenant, it would be, I think, strange in the extreme that he would go to a Roman concept in the midst of talking about Hebraic notions of covenant. Uh, would you just spell D-I-A-T-H-E-K? Uh, yes. Well, I spell it in English for you. D-I-A-T-H-E-K-E. Long E. D-I-A-T-H-E-K-E. D-I-A-T-H-E-K-E. That K actually in Greek. Ada at the end in the Greek. Okay. Yes. Okay, the context then is that of the Mosaic administration. And God, you remember, did not make a testament with Moses, he made a covenant with Moses. In verse 15, we read of the new and the first diatheke obviously a covenant. There's not a, a new testament, although you might say, wait a minute, that's what Hebrews appears in, the New Testament, and that, that really misleads people. We call the Old Testament scriptures Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures New Testament scriptures. And as much as uh, it would be practical, I'd like to see us change our terminology even there. It's misleading. We should say Old Covenant scriptures and New Covenant scriptures. This is the writing of, the, of God's covenant in both places. But we're so accustomed from medieval times to using the word testament that um, when I tell you there is no Old Testament, you say, well, yes, there is. That's, you know, 39 books back here that we call the Old Testament. That's misleading when we do that. Verse 15 tells us a death took place for redemption from transgressions committed against the diatheke. Well, obviously, you don't have a death for the sake of transgressions against the last will and testament. The death is what institutes the provisions of the last will and testament. It's not for violations of the last will and testament. So you know verse 15 is covenant. There can be no doubt in your mind about that. Let's look at verses 18 to 20, just so we get the context down. Explicitly, we have reference to a blood-sprinkling ceremony which inaugurates the Mosaic Covenant at Mount Sinai. Let me read verses 18, 19, and 20. Wherefore, even the first, last will and testament, or first covenant, whichever, 
hath not been dedicated without blood. You don't dedicate last wills and testaments with blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses unto all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the, what's the word in the Old Testament? Covenant. This is the blood of the covenant, which God commanded to you word. Now what is the first word in verse 18? Therefore or wherefore. And whenever you see therefore, you'd better ask, what's it there for? (laughs) Obviously, the author is carrying on something from what he's just said. He's pulling down an implication. He's drawing an inference from what he's just said. Now, if what he has just been talking about is a last will and testament, and he says, therefore, covenants are of the following sort, of course, he'd be guilty of the most fallacious kind of reasoning imaginable. He'd be guilty of using a word in two different senses altogether and trying to draw a conclusion uh, with one idea in mind when he's been arguing on the basis of a different idea altogether. And so, although the commentaries, if you were to do a, a vote tonight, the commentaries are against poor Dr. Bonson. I'm in the minority in this. I believe I'm right and they're wrong. I don't believe that you can take 16 and 17 as testamental conception when verse 18 says, therefore, and then talks about a covenant. And it's clearly a covenant in verse 18. It's clearly a covenant in verse 15. So here you have 15 is covenantal, 18 is covenantal, and wedged between them, 16 and 17, which supposedly the author plays on a pun and talks about a last will and testament. No, I just don't buy it. Yes? In my Bible, it says um, in verse 20, uh, he's quoting verse 19 where Moses, you know, and everything. He says, saying, this is the blood of the testament which God has enjoined unto you. And it doesn't, it's not in italics or anything. The word of the testament is not in italics. No, they've translated diatheke as testament. Now, which translation do you have? King James. King James, yes. The King James also, you know, is from the period in which we call this Old Testament and New Testament. That's that's unfortunate. Well, it sounds really funny because they're they're flat out misquoting him if they say this is the blood of the New Testament. No, what they're doing is the Greek word may be translated testament. The argument is how should it be translated here, testament or covenant? Now, it's quoting Exodus 24.8. And in Exodus 24.8, in the Hebrew, there's no doubt about it. It's covenant. That's what I mean. It would be a misquote if it was translated testament. It would be a misquote. Well, it's... um, it's not, a mis, it's not a mistranslation of the Greek word, but I do think it's not the translation to be preferred when you look at it in terms of its context. Yes? I don't really think I understand what um, was meant by testament. I mean, I understand what testament, you know, last will and testament is today, but, uh, but I don't understand why they would call the Old Testament an Old Testament and why they call the New Testament the New Testament and why they well, pretty much for the reason that uh, Bob has already brought up, and, and which has been used by even modern theologians, the idea that God has bequeathed something to us, and that through the death of our Savior, we become inherit- inheritors of his kingdom. And, and the same idea as the last will and testament would give it to us on the basis of our father's death or something. No, because the Old Testament anticipates the New Testament. 
And the old, under the old order, the people had an inheritance that came to them through death, but of course it was looking ahead to Jesus' death. Yes, ma'am. Okay, let's remember that the word testament is an English word, so we're asking when did the English word testament catch on? Long ago, in the, in the days of Wycliffe and, uh, at the, and, and later in the days of the King James translation. And it's just unfortunate because covenant, I think, is the theological concept being explored here by the author, not testament. But I haven't proven that. After all, verses 16 and 17 do look like a testament, don't they? Real quick, Bob. Why would they call the New Testament the New Testament? Did we have to die to inherit eternal life? No, because Jesus died that we might inherit eternal life. So it's like backwards from everyone They're both tied together. They both have to do with the death of the mediator for the sake of uh, those who would become heirs. After all, we are sons of God, right? Adopted sons. And I, I can give you an argument for a testamental conception. I just can't make it a linguistic one. Linguistically, all of it favors covenant. No, it could be new in the sense that it finally brings to fruition or gives substance to what was looked forward to in the old. Uh, the NIV, the NIV, NIV renders the 16th verses, in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Yeah, will there is another word for testament. Okay, but how, I don't see where covenant could possibly be used in that sentence instead of will. Good. Here's someone challenging now. Well, I've got all the context and linguistic evidence in my behalf, but now we have to look at the verse itself, right? Let's do it. For where a diatheke is, there must of necessity be the death of him that made it. Okay, first of all, I'm getting away from my notes, but maybe in light of the time I'd better get away from my notes. We won't finish again. For where a testament is, on one interpretation, there must of necessity be the death of him that made it. That makes perfectly good sense. There's only one problem, of course, and that's that the word translated must of necessity be the death in Greek is to bring, to bear. And so if we translate it literally, for where a testament is, there must of necessity be born the death of him that made it. Well, it's okay. It's a little rough, though. Why do you have to bring in the death of him that made it? I would suggest that verse 16 could be translated, for where a covenant is, there must of necessity be brought into the picture. There must be introduced the death of him that made it. That when you make a covenant, you introduce the death of the covenant maker. And all of a sudden, I mean, if you're an Old Testament student, the coin drops. You say, well, of course. When God made covenant with Abraham, he brought into the picture the death of the covenant maker because he said that the animals were to be cut in half and laid on two sides and God passed between the two of them saying, may death come upon me if I break my word to you, Abraham. And so God introduced the death of the covenant maker when he made covenant with Abraham. He brought it in. Yeah, I would render verse 16, for where a covenant is, uh, of necessity, there must be introduced the death of him who made it. Do you refer to the possible death of God's father then? 
I'm sorry? No, we're referring symbolically to the death of God the Father. Not just God the Father, but God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was God himself, Jehovah, who made covenant with Abraham. And what God said is, may I die if I don't keep my word to you. And then somebody says, but God, you can't die. And he says, that's the point. (laughs) That's the point. My word will not fail you because if it did, I'd have to cease being God. Now... Do we see God arguing that way anywhere in the pages of the New Testament? Doug, can you remind us of a passage where God wants to make even stronger his promise to Abraham by making a covenant like this? In the New Testament? In the New Testament? Exactly. And it's in the book of Hebrews, after all. Let's turn back to Hebrews, the sixth chapter. Verse 13, for when God made promise to Abraham, since he could swear by none greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely in blessing I will bless thee, in multiplying I will multiply thee. And thus, having patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men swear by the greater, for in every dispute of theirs the oath is final for confirmation, wherein God, being minded to show more abundantly unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, interposed with an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. To put it very simply, if God doesn't keep my word to me, he'll cease being God. God says, I cannot be God if I won't keep my word to you. I mean, what, what, great, what more sure foundation could you have for your salvation than that? God says, surely I will do this for you. And let me go out of the business of being God. Let me die, the one who can't die, if I lie. Of course, I can't lie, so there's two immutable things. It's impossible for God to lie, impossible for God to die. And he backs up his word with his own life, that he will save you. Wonderful passage. Okay. So, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16... Where there is a covenant of necessity, there must be introduced, or if you want literally, there must be born in or brought in the death of the one who makes the covenant. Now look at verse 17. For where a diatheke is a force, sorry, for a diatheke is of force, pardon me. And the translation I have says, where there hath been death. Where there has been death in Greek is upon dead plural. Epi necroi. Upon dead plural. To, to flesh it out for you, upon dead bodies. For a testament is of force upon dead bodies. There's a real problem here for the testamental interpretation. At best, that is, a testament goes into effect upon the death of the person who made the testament, right? But that's not plural. Only one person has to die for a testament to go into effect, the person who made it. But the Greek says, for a diatheke is a force, a p-necroi, upon dead bodies. Well, the word a p in Greek can be translated upon or over. Try it this way. For a covenant is a force over dead bodies. Please turn tape over at this time. And it makes perfectly good sense. 
because the covenant made with Abraham was put into effect over dead bodies, plural. Remember, he had many animals that were cut in half and birds, and God passed between all of them. And so the language fits the Abrahamic covenant. The inauguration of the Abrahamic covenant does not fit a testament. Testaments are not in force over the dead, plural. They come into effect upon the death of the testator, to be sure. But the language literally rendered wouldn't fit the testamental conception. It would fit the covenantal conception. And so again, you need to be aware of the fact that I am in the minority in arguing this way, but I'm willing to debate it publicly with anybody who wants to. I think the argument's pretty strong, that the author doesn't slip out of covenantal language into testamental language and then back into covenantal language like some kind of inconsistent writer or somebody who likes to play games with words. I think the author means covenant throughout. And he's thinking of the Abrahamic inauguration and the Mosaic sacrificial um, service of inaugurating that covenant all along. Lori. Yes, I believe that God made a covenant with Adam. Did he make that covenant over dead bodies? He made the covenant with Abraham over dead bodies, and the only thing I would argue is that that's what the author has in mind here, is that it was made over dead bodies in the case of Abraham and in the case of Moses, because the inauguration ceremony called for sacrifice, sacrifices. So in both cases, uh, the covenant, and of course, if, if I were to respond to that as though that were a critical question for my interpretation, I would say the author here is obviously thinking of the Mosaic Covenant rather than the covenant made with Adam. And then I would argue he has behind the Mosaic Covenant the Abrahamic Covenant since he makes reference to the Abrahamic Covenant in chapter 6. And that's one of the points I'm going to make if I, if I get to my point eventually at the end, is that over against dispensational theology, we don't have a view of the new covenant that sees it as God trying to rectify a mistake from some experiment he tried previously. That all the stuff that we read about the new covenant is in fulfillment of what we saw in terms of Abraham and Moses. We don't have God going through plan A and plan B and plan C and finally says, I, I hit upon it. Salvation by faith, that'll work. <laughs> You know, and though I'm caricaturing the position, you have to understand that is what classical dispensationalism teaches, that God has had many ways of salvation. He's tried this, he's tried the other, and finally, in the case of the New Testament church, he's found the way of faith. The author of Hebrews would say that Christ instituted a new covenant against the background of what were not failed efforts, but the intention of God all along over dead bodies, Abraham and Moses. Yes. Right. We're working phrase by phrase. For a covenant is of force over dead bodies, for it does never avail while he that made it lives. And um, if I had to argue the other side, the testamental side, I'd hold on for dear life to the end of verse 17, because that's the roughest part for my interpretation. I'd be glad to admit that. But I do think that in context, we've squeezed testament out all the way along, and we've only got one last phrase to deal with. And notice verse 18 is going to jump right back into covenantal language. And I'm saying that ought to embarrass the people who interpret that testamentally. Now, how do I handle that awkwardness? That what we're talking about here is the death of the, of the person who makes the covenant or makes the, the testament. And um, 
that that death can be interpreted either as actual, now that's what you'd want if you interpreted this as a testament. When he actually dies, then the inheritance comes. The testament comes into effect. But if you interpret it as the symbolic death of the person, that's true. The covenant's not in force until the death of the person who makes the covenant has been brought into As long as he lives symbolically, the covenant has not been inaugurated. And so what you do is you have to decide whether we're talking about the actual death of the testator or the symbolic death of the covenant maker. And um, the only thing I can tell you is that I'm interpreting it symbolically because of context, that the language would not tip you one way or another, and that the testamental interpretation would have to hold on for dear life to the actual death of the testator in that verse. As long as the testator is alive, provisions are not enacted. Yeah, as long as the covenant maker does not represent his death, a covenant has not been made. Because a covenant is a covenant unto death. He says, let me die if I don't do. It's what we call a self-maledictory oath. May this malediction, may this ugly, nasty, terrible, cursed statement, maledication, come upon me if I don't do what I promise. Brian. Yeah, There's no special theological um, insight. Seems like, seems like you're, you're trying to make a, a major point on covenants here and then all of a sudden you kind of slip in a, a nifty little play on words and then move on in the, uh, making another point. The well, that's exactly what the testamental interpreters say he did. I don't really, yeah, I don't really see the, the point for that either. Yeah, I don't see the advantage of him doing it either, except that he plays on a word and... Uh, well, I mean, he does say, he points out that an inheritance has been given to us. That's the last word of verse 15. And so from inheritance, he thinks, diatheke, testament, we inherit things from when the testator dies. Jesus is the testator as well as the maker of the covenant. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't carry a lot of weight with me anymore either, but that is what the argument would be. Joe. Is there anything uh, suggestive or enlightening in the, in the phrase there, in force, that the language would tell us here? Well, if anything, it might help the testamental interpretation because that's language that is used for putting a testament into effect. But the language could also be used of a covenant being put into effect when the death of the covenant maker is symbolized. Yes? Um, not to be devil's advocate, but I can see the argument for um, why it would be very Wait a minute, that strongly makes the point for testament? testament. No, I think I think you just argued in favor of covenant. I don't think so, because testament has been after Christ had died, then we have we obtained This is the way I would argue it in terms of a covenant. That God made a covenant with us and that there is going to be a curse upon anybody who breaks the covenant. 
If we are the ones who break the covenant, the curse will come upon us. If God breaks the covenant, the curse will come upon him. In the case of Christ, he lifted the curse of the covenant by taking it upon himself, even though it should have been enacted upon us. And so that what the author here is driving home about as, as uh, emphatically as you can, the doctrine of grace. When he says the death of the covenant maker was symbolically represented, but the covenant maker is not the one who broke the covenant. We did. And so what you have in the case of the, let's look at Abraham and Moses brought together. In the case of the Abrahamic covenant, its inauguration, the death of the covenant maker is symbolized as God passes between the animal parts. In the Mosaic Covenant, the sacrifices symbolize the death of what? The covenant breaker, God's people. And so in Abraham and Moses, if you bring those two together, you have a reversal. God didn't break the covenant, but he takes the place of the sacrifice in the Mosaic Covenant. The covenant maker dies in the place of the covenant breaker. Yes. Biblical covenants are self-maledictory oaths. May the following malediction come upon me if I don't perform this. And it is of necessity. That's the nature of a covenant. A covenant is a bond, a pledge to the point of death. May I die if I don't do this. Yes. In 15 to 18, you have each of these verses, at least in English beginning, and for, 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 and therefore. Is that a kind of chain that Paul uses to tie one point together? Doesn't he do that in one of his other epistles? Or is that. Well, Paul didn't write the book of Hebrews, and so that wouldn't argue too strongly here. The language does, as I said in verse 18, with therefore being at the beginning of it, um, we do have an argument in favor of it, uh, keeping the same conception as before. Otherwise, the author has one thing in his premise and another thing in his conclusion, which means his argument's invalid. Yes? That is, yeah, I, the fair, to, to carry out the, uh, the imagery, Jesus is the legitimate son of God who has all these blessings coming to him as the son of God. He makes a will and then dies, and his will passes on the blessings to the adopted sons of God. Well, it, it's pushing it a bit, I agree. Well, you do have the language of adoption. You do have the language of fellow heirs. And so if somebody would say, it's just another step to say Jesus wrote a last will and left his, the benefit of the Father, to the adopted sons. Well, then the Pope's probably got a copy of it. Well, all I'm saying is I would not discount the interpretation on that basis, but I would certainly say I'm not inclined toward it because it does seem a little far-fetched. But I can give you biblical imagery and background for my interpretation, and that, I think, makes it a superior approach. Kent. The, I'm having a problem with the second half of verse 17, so I, I guess I kind of got lost in somewhere along the line. Of course, my King James Bible might have something to do with it. 
it says um, for a testament force is a force uh, when death is brought into the picture. Okay, that's what you're arguing. Otherwise, no, that's verse 16. I'm in 17. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Yeah, or, but it should say over dead bodies. Okay, for a testament is a force over dead bodies. Otherwise, uh, it is of no strength at all. Yeah, as long as the person who makes the covenant, as long as their death is not symbolized, the covenant hasn't been inaugurated. So again, the question, that's the toughest part for my interpretation, and it's an issue, is that talking about actual death or symbolic death? And if it symbolizes the death of the maker of the covenant, then it fits in very well. And if it's actual, then you would support the testamental interpretation. Yeah, I'd like to end our study tonight by turning to two passages in the New Testament totally apart from the argument over testament and covenant. I'm glad we do this. We don't always get into technical discussions like this in Bible study, but it's good for us to sharpen our skills and do it every once in a while. Turn to Matthew 26, verse 28. Matthew 26, verse 28. And notice how Jesus uses this language himself. At the last um, supper, the last Passover, where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, we read in verse 27, he took a cup and gave thanks and gave to them saying, drink all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many unto remission of sins. For this is my blood of my covenant. This is the blood of my covenant made with you, poured out for remission. And then turn to Luke 22, verse 20, a parallel expression where Luke adds a little more to what Jesus said. And the cup in like manner after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. <coughs> Jesus, at the institution of the Lord's Supper, said, I'm instituting the new covenant in my blood. This is the blood of the covenant. This is the blood of the new covenant. The author of Hebrews is reflecting on Moses, uh, the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant. And notice in verse 20, he quotes Exodus 24:8, saying, This is the blood of the covenant. This is the blood of the covenant. Jesus uses exactly that language when he says, this my blood is the blood of the new covenant. And so again, don't ever buy into the dispensational idea that God just came up with a new idea to rectify a failed experiment. What Jesus was doing was in fulfillment of all that the old covenant looked ahead to. And this blood of the covenant sprinkled by Moses is now what we drink from the cup of the new covenant in the new covenant. Not testament. Yes, Bob. No, no, not at all. I didn't mean to suggest that the testamental interpretation goes with dispensationalism. I said, putting aside testament and covenant, I'd like you to see what Jesus says at the institution of the Lord's Supper and point out against dispensationalism, he's using the very language of Moses in the institution of the covenant. Jim. That's not unusual. <laughs> yeah, I'm in the minority historically. I'm in the minority in terms of contemporary uh, commentators. 
Um, but I don't think I'm in the minority when it comes to the truth. I do think that the arguments favor very strongly covenantal language, not testamental language, in those two verses. Glenn. It seems like the uh, New American Standard translators agree with you. Because they put covenant in those words. Yeah. New American Standard has covenant in 16 and 17? <laughs> the normal Bible has. Yeah, well, that's King James' preference for that word. Yes. In verse, in verse 15, yes, because verses 16 and 17 are referring to the inauguration of a covenant. And so at the inauguration of a covenant, you don't actually kill the covenant maker. You symbolize the death of the covenant maker. Okay, we do need to get on to our prayer meeting. I've uh, cheated you out of a few minutes there. I apologize for it, but this has been a good study. You know, every once in a while I've got to roll up the sleeves and get into the details with you. And we'll continue next uh, week with the subject of the necessity of blood atonement. Why must blood be shed for purification? And then what implications that has for us. Um, Elder Doug Jones, would you close in prayer for us, please? and the grace that you pour out on us. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to teach us and cause us to grow in grace and knowledge of you and your word. We might be more faithful servants. We thank you, Lord, that the mediator of the new covenant has taken on the curse that we so rightly deserve, Lord, that you have been so merciful to us. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless this evening in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.